all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, investors, and operators about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am uh, talking with Brian Miller, who is the partner at Bloom Venture Partners, a secondary brokerage servicing technology companies and transacting in the secondary market. Before that, he was at a director at Ocean uh, Oceanic Partners, and before that, he was at Shares Post, which got acquired by Forge, which is you know a big venture-backed um, secondary brokerage on the market. It's raining in Carlsbad. Uh, Brian, are you okay? Like from the yes. storm? Yeah, totally fine. We live on top of a hill, fortunately. Um, but uh, I am getting a little sick of this rain. I moved from the East Coast for a reason. You're paying good money. <laughs> You're paying good money right? to not have to deal with this weather. Yes, I, that's what I thought. Uh, but I think we got a few more days of this ahead. Do you feel sorry for the people in Coronado that are getting flooded? No, no. Yeah, not I don't all. either. They're, don't, they're doing just fine. Everyone here, this, we, yeah, we yeah. can deal with this. <laughs> I'm like they're they're complaining about the sewage coming up from Tijuana, and I was like, I just I just don't feel bad for you, like you, the no. island of like five to ten million dollar houses. Yeah, it is paradise there most of the year, so they'll be okay. Um, so let's hear your backstory. Yeah, so um, appreciate the intro. Um, as you said, I'm a partner, managing director at Bloom Venture Partners. We're a secondaries advisory and liquidity provider. Um, but, um, you know, the majority of what we do is brokerage within the late stage VC backed secondary market. Um, that's a bit of a mouthful, but to take a step back, my background has always been in finance and specifically in uh, equity trading. But I started my career out of school in the public markets. Um, so, my first job was at a company called KCG that was previously Knight Capital Group and then was acquired by a company called Virtu Financial, um, which it still is Virtu today. Um, they're one of the largest uh, market makers and public equity broker dealers uh, in the United States and globally. Uh, I think at the time I had left uh, about six, seven years ago, they were doing over a fifth of U.S. public equity volume on a daily basis. So, you know, all the shares of Apple, Facebook, Tesla, et cetera, all U.S. public equities, uh, more than uh, 20% uh, of those were going through Virtu Pipes. So that was a good learning experience uh, to start my career because uh, they really were in the thick of U.S. public equity markets, which are uh, probably the most liquid um, and easily transferable uh, market in the world outside of maybe you know FX and a few other very electronically traded markets. But uh, long story short, they've really figured out the efficiency of that market to the point where now companies are trading with microwaves um, to make sure that latency is 
is as fast as possible. So that's where I started my career. I was both a trader and I was in sales. Um, most of my clients were um, in, they were mutual funds, they were hedge funds. Um, anyone that was, you know, relatively active as an institutional trader um, in the public equities market. After a few years of doing that uh, and doing that in San Francisco, um, I was much more plugged into the tech scene um, and wanted to pivot away from that career. Fortunately, uh, stumbled upon Shares Post, um, which was one of the earliest players within uh, the market that I operate in now, which is the VC secondary market. Um, and uh, so joined them and went to, while we were trading equities, it's a, it's a completely different market than what I was used to, um, which was trading, you know, millions or, or billions worth of dollars in portfolios uh, on a daily basis to, you know, uh, these uh, long dated, uh, multi-week, sometimes multi-month transactions that are very slow moving, manual processes, the complete opposite end of the spectrum um, in terms of efficiency uh, within the equity markets. Um, but the market has grown substantially over the last six or seven years, as long as I've been doing this. Um, I think as of today, there's over 1,200 companies that are worth over a billion dollars, quote unquote, unicorns. Um, so the market's grown pretty pretty exponentially uh, since I joined. Um, and once I joined Shares Post, I kind of knew this was something I wanted to do for the long term. Um, and uh, most recently in May, my partner and I started Bloom Venture Partners together um, with the idea of creating an institutionally focused product in our specific industry. So that was a lot. I can stop there if you have questions about, you know, the early parts of my career or where that's led me to today. Let's talk about your teenage years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're a sure. tall guy. Were you athletic? You looked like you were athletic. Uh, some would say so. I, I did play college football. Um, I like to think I was athletic. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, bro. I don't want to hear about. It. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your your, your your how many chicks you used to date. Um, because I, I was not I was not one of those guys. I was fat with red hair, and but I'm I'm come good. A long now. Way. Yeah, come I've come a, way. I've come a long way. Um, so. The secondary market, for those who don't understand what the difference between secondaries and primaries are, can you just give a little bit of background in, sure. in context to the world of venture? Yes. Uh, in context to the world of venture, um, there are, as you mentioned, both primary and secondary markets. Primary markets are what you would think of as the typical fundraising round for a private company. So most people know them as series uh, alphabetically. So there's seed, series A, B, C, and so on and so forth. Those are That's primary capital that investors are giving to the company for a portion uh, of the equity in that company. And that, that cash goes to the balance sheet of the company to use for operational activities. Um, that's what um, you know. The, the big venture firms uh, do Sequoia, Andreessen, etc. That's typically what they focus on. There's this whole other market called the secondary market, which is uh, the transaction of shares which have already been issued. So that could be a founder who has a, uh, a portion of a company. It could be an early employee who are given equity grants as part of their compensation, or it could be an investor in the company that had previously invested and is then looking to sell the shares that they currently own. So that is what's called the secondary market, which is where we focus. Um, and those types of uh, shareholders, whether they're employees or investors, 
uh, come to folks like us to help liquidate positions that they're looking to sell. Uh, and we work with a number of institutional clients on the buy side as well to facilitate those transactions. Awesome. And so when you're doing this, are you doing this through a dedicated fund or like, how do you, how do you think about this allocation of capital? We are, uh, you can think of us as the middleman essentially. Um, so we don't have a fund that we, that we utilize here at Bloom. Um, we have uh, relationships on, on both sides of the market. Uh, and we are having con- conversations daily with our clients to figure out who's interested in buying or selling what, um, and hopefully uh, agreeing to and negotiating transactions. Um, and then our operations team does the heavy lifting of the actual processing of the transaction itself. Um, so Bloom itself does not have a dedicated fund of capital, but there's a number of players in the space, whether they're dedicated secondary funds, um, which uh, is, is quite a large market these days from both a VC perspective and GPLP and private equity secondary funds. Um, or the typical, the crossover funds, the venture funds, family offices, um, you know, anyone that is relatively active within the private markets um, is a theoretical client of ours. So literally, you probably have the hardest job on the planet. I don't know about that. I like. What I, <laughs> I mean, you're literally making a market on the buy and sell side, and in, comp- in companies that are illiquid, and you're very in there's a sensitivity to the information being shared. Yes. Um, and that is a main focus of, uh, of Bloom Venture Partners and how we go about our, our work with our clients is there's an inherent uh, aspect of confidentiality, uh, transparency, but also discretion that uh, our clients are all interested in maintaining. Um, and so we really focus on that. And you can think of a transaction too as having three parties. There's the buyers, there's the sellers, and there's the company themselves. Because this market, as you said, it's very opaque. Uh, there's no central transfer agent. There's no New York Stock Exchange. There's no dark pools where uh, you know transactions can occur um, and settle. Uh, the and there's no regulation, company. right? Like there's no one that's actually saying, well, that company is worth that. There's no like market clearing price, right? And there's no, not, and, that's, and there's that's not a, like, and there's not like requirements on reporting and valuate in like, you know, earnings and how they're accounting their books. I mean, they should be doing that internally, but technically from a market perspective, it's not, it's not mandated. Correct. Yes. Unless you're in RIA or, you know, there are specific types of funds um, or investors who have fiduciary duties where they are required to report. Um, Those types of funds tend to be less interested in our market because of the lack of information, which is another part of our market is there's an inherent information asymmetry um, between both buyers and sellers. Sellers, if they're insiders at the company, tend to know more about what's going on. Uh, Buyers are often more in the dark, especially if they're not currently on the cap table. So there's inherent information asymmetry. But uh, if you talk to any hedge fund manager, analyst, et cetera, then you know that when there's information asymmetry, there's opportunities to generate alpha. Um, And uh, so that's why a lot of uh, different types of funds, family offices, crossovers, hedge funds, et cetera, are interested in our market uh, because it is... It's a gray area, but we are doing our best to kind of bring bring light to an otherwise uh, opaque market. Um, it is difficult in that um, you know the types of opportunities we work on um, again tend to not have access to information, so sourcing that can be very difficult. Um, but 
overall, I'd say uh, as long as you have a, a basic understanding of the landscape of the market, the types of players, and um, what type of information would be considered sensitive to uh, either the company itself that we're transacting in or the buyer or seller, then you can do a good job as a broker and as a partner with with your clients in the space. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, we're... I mean, the big story in the news regarding secondaries is Carta, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so tell me what happened at Carta and why that was such a big deal. Yeah, so uh, Carta, uh, Carta's big, bold ambition um, outside of their main business line, which is obviously the cap table management software, which they moved into investor services and a number of other business lines. But the kind of pie in the sky idea was to create a secondary marketplace. Um, and for the most part, most people thought, you know, this was the most obvious next step for them. They had all of the players, all of the pieces that were necessary to uh, to transact uh, within the secondary market, right? They had they had all the cap table information, which is which is vital. They have uh, you know they have the ability to transfer shares via their software. We actually often will coordinate with with somebody at Carta when we're doing transfers because they have to move the the shares sure. on their books and records. Um, and then they had the investor services side of things too. So they had um, they already had a pool of prospective both buyers and sellers. Um, and uh, it just kind of clicked and made sense that this was what the logical next step um, for, for Carta was going to be. What I think they didn't foresee, um, which those that were closer to the market um, uh, like ourselves kind of knew that something like this was going to come up. Um, I don't know that uh, we knew it was going to happen in such grand fashion um, and uh, so abruptly, but uh, there was a, a conflict of interest with the handling of customer information. Um, and not to go into too many of the specifics because this is all just secondhand of, of things that I've read, um, but uh, essentially they seem to have used proprietary information uh, from a cap table uh, of one of the companies that was one of their clients to then solicit uh, secondary market opportunities from shareholders who otherwise would not have been apparent to own those shares. So it was pretty clear they were misusing customer information and data to the benefit of the secondary fund, which, long story short, led them to shut down the secondary business altogether. Did you buy it? Did you pick it up? I heard they were divesting that business. <laughs> Us? No. Um, I don't know what they're doing with that, actually. Um, I'm, I'm sure that they're slowly getting out of it methodically, but um, I don't know what's going on with the, with the folks they hired there. Um, and Yeah, so essentially uh, sure. everyone has a Carta login because they can see their options from an employer mm-hmm. or an investor perspective, and Carta exactly. also has your information. And so literally they could just go and say, hey, do you want to sell your stock, unbeknownst to the management of the company? Correct. And yeah. you know, doing automating the work that you have to do manually, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so, but why, why do companies or management of companies care about this? So, yeah, and this is, this is a problem we run into as well. We're obviously not selling other software products to most of these companies. So there's no kind of conflict of interest from that perspective, but, um, there's generally kind of two views on, uh, secondary market and liquidity for mostly for employees, but for investors as well, um, from a management or founder's perspective. And usually it's either, we view this very positively. It's a 
uh, extra benefit for our employees who have put their blood, sweat, and tears, likely forego, uh, foregoing large cash salaries from maybe some of the larger tech players, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, um, and are giving their heart and soul to the company to help grow in exchange for equity in the company. They view this as positive if employees choose to then sell their equity in the future on the open market. Or the flip side of that is, uh, which I'd say it's close to 50-50, um, is the exact opposite. Founders are sometimes inherently uh, control freaks, and they would like control of their cap table, who's invested, um, and also it can be uh, the optically can be viewed negatively if you have an employee that is still at your company, but is selling a relatively large portion of their equity. Um, it could be seen negatively from both the employee's perspective and if for whatever reason information was leaked uh, to the media that transactions were happening at relatively low prices, then um, you know that's kind of a PR storm for the company that, that they're not going to want to get involved in. So well, right. those and, are and, two. And, and it incentivizes them because generally a lot of these companies have the right to buy it first. Yep. And yep. they don't want to use their cash to be buying shares. Correct. Yeah. So um, companies handle secondaries very differently. Um, every company is different and unique um, and has their own process. Of course, some are very similar to others, um, but it ranges from anything to uh, a relatively free open marketplace. Uh, as long as you find a qualified buyer that is able to purchase the shares at whatever price is deemed Um acceptable between both parties. You present it to the company. As you mentioned, they do have the right of first refusal. They can purchase those shares or assign them to a major investor um, if they choose to purchase them at that price or allow the transfer to go through. Um, there's companies that do what's called structured liquidity programs or commonly known as tender offers. Um, that's more led by the company. Typically, it's maybe a handful of investors that are already on the cap table or potentially new investors who give a set price and then the company goes to their employees or shareholders and says, hey, you can sell maybe 10, 15% of your holdings. This is the set terms. Companies like NASDAQ Private Markets, um, Carta actually did had a product that did that as well. Um, so that's another way they do it. And then the other end of the spectrum is companies who um, will uh, implement different bylaws or restrictions within the equity agreements that they give to their employees um, and uh, just simply not allow secondaries whatsoever. But the problem with that from an employee perspective is, and this is a first world problem, um, but it's a problem nonetheless and one that I deal with on at least a weekly basis with some of my clients, is it's a large capital outlay um, for most of these employees to exercise your options, both from a, you know, what the strike price is and what you have to pay to the company, but also from a tax perspective, depending on where the internal valuations are. So there's people, there's employees who maybe aren't worth all that much, and this is their first big win, but have to pay tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in uh, exercise costs and taxes. And then have to hold the shares with with no actual knowledge of whether the company is going to su succeed and exit or not. So that puts employees in a pickle, um, and uh, is one of the one of the many reasons I think that uh, companies themselves should be a little bit more open to um, at least allowing some form of liquidity, whether it's a tender offer or through the open market. I know that companies can set policies with bylaws, but at the end of the day, is it legal for a company to restrict someone from selling their property? I'm not a lawyer, um, I so I will not opine on that. I would say that 
what's most important is when you're thinking about joining a company, make sure you understand what future liquidity looks like um, and read your agreements carefully to understand whether or not the company is going to put up uh, a stink for you selling your shares in the future. Um, whether it's legal or not, I'd say there's multiple different opinions. Um, but if you sign something when you join a company that uh, is explicitly saying that you are not able to sell, pledge, hypothecate, et cetera, the equity in the company that you're receiving, then whether from a broader perspective it's legal or not, um, you know, it's going to be uh, a big pain in the butt uh, to, to try to sell those shares in the future. So definitely know what you're getting yourself into before you sign a contract that says, you know, here's 1% of the company, but uh, you're going to owe millions of dollars to exercise that. And uh, who knows if the company's going to succeed or not. Do you feel like um, the argument is a little less um enforceable to earlier stage investors because mm -hmm. i see a lot of earlier stage investors they just get keep on getting pulled and pulled and pulled deeper and deeper in the cap stack where literally the top of the stack is buying and selling and transacting and selling mm -hmm. to the next stage of capital and the earlier stage people are literally being treated like employees right yep. and and keep on getting dragged what's your opinion on that um <clears throat> most investors, regardless of the stage, own preferred shares, right? So it's that primary capital that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And most preferred shares, even if it's seed preferred uh, or seed common, sometimes referred to, most of those uh, shares are not subject to the same uh, restrictions that common shares would be that are issued to an employee. So um, I think what you're asking is, um, you know, whether or not you think the earlier stage investors um, tend to be um, forgotten by by this market. I don't think that's necessarily the case, um, and uh, certainly a number of the transactions that we're working on now are from those earlier stage funds who um, have had a few winners, and now from a risk perspective. Uh, or just simply a DPI perspective that they're trying to generate to go maybe raise more capital um, are coming to folks like us to then sell to those that are more active within the later stage of the cap stack, the growth stage investors who um, are looking to acquire shares in, in some of these later stage companies. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. So how's business? Good. It's, uh, I'd say 2024 is off to a good start. Um, just, Anecdotally, through our conversations that we have every day with um, both buyers and sellers, um, a lot of people from 2022 through kind of end of even 2023 um, were looking to put money to work on the buy side, but, but pretty cautious on the sell side and not wanting to sell at the prices that were being given um, by prospective buyers. We call that the bid ask spread. It was quite wide for a while and has been slowly narrowing since um, since the public market pullback and kind of multiple pullback and compression once rates went up uh, back in twenty twenty two. We're finally at a point where that bid ask spread um, has come much closer together. More sellers are capitulating. More uh, of these companies have grown uh, substantially into the valuations that they had raised at back in twenty twenty one. In 2022. Um, so we're starting to see a lot more activity come together, specifically in uh, some of the later stage companies. Uh, fingers crossed, but we're hoping, as are many, that the IPO and exit window uh, opens up 
hopefully in the next 12 months or so it's there's some there's some small light coming through at the end of the tunnel here uh from some of these later stage companies that we're hoping are going to go public which i really think will um continue to uh open up the volume that uh the single asset vc secondary space um is producing so so far so good for 2024 we shall see it's going to be an eventful year with both the election and the see where rates go but um overall business is good right now who are you gonna vote for i'm just kidding you know you, you don't have to answer that throwing some curveballs man just really just really like uh trying to spice it up um so generally what stage company are secondaries available for because obviously you know companies that are seed series a probably don't have a ton of interest based on mm-hmm. them being subscale and unproven where do you see the majority of your transactions happening the majority of the transactions happen in uh and i i tend to not like this kind of this buzzword but in the quote-unquote pre-ipo space um which is typically companies that no longer need to raise capital or likely won't need to raise capital prior to an exit event often that exit is uh is an IPO, but could be an M&A event as well, which we've seen a number of kind of larger scale M&A events, uh, mostly from private equity and kind of the private equity purchasing later stage software companies. Um, we've seen some issues actually with like Figma, which was recently um, blocked by the by the EU um, and uh, iRobot, which was just canceled um, by uh, American US regulators, um, which is being purchased by Amazon. So uh, mostly later stage companies um, that tend to not need capital. Um, We've done transactions as early as a Series A, um, but by nature of the players in our space, which on the buy side are more later stage, growth stage investors, they're looking for companies with product market fit, a substantial revenue base that they can grow off of, um, and a likely exit scenario within 12 to 36 months. Um, And then if you think about it from the sell side as well, most people that just started at a series A or series B company, um, they don't want to sell their equity yet. They want to see how the company is doing. They're still so early in the company. It hasn't had that chance to grow. Um, And so inherently there's not as much liquidity on the sell side. But once you get into, uh, you know, three, four, five, $10 billion private company, there's a number of folks who are looking for liquidity. Um, so that tends to be where volume aggregates. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so when you explain to me this ecosystem and brokers in general, you said one of your real taglines and differentiators is, is that you're not a piece of shit. Right. And like, which has, I, I found very, along those lines. Yeah. So I find that very affable. I think those are like di- your direct quote. And, <laughs> So, or I'm not an asshole. I'm not an asshole, right? That's usually the line I go with. (laughs) Yeah. And so why do you have, why does the industry have that represent, you know, that represent, um, what, why is that like? Yeah. It, It all comes back to how opaque and gray this market is. Um, as you said, there's very few regulations. Uh, of course, we're, we're registered broker dealer. Um, you know, my partner and I both have our series seven or 63. Um, everything is above board, but by nature of the lack of information that is available in the space, the overall grayness, um, of, 
of both the the broker community, but the, the transactions themselves leads some players uh, leads to some players entering the market, especially back in 2021, uh, 2022, uh, when volumes were substantially high uh, and uh, money was relatively good in the space. Uh, it led to some nefarious players and um, also leads to some nefarious tactics from some of these players who, um, you know, while they're just trying to make a buck, um, they do it in a way that uh, kind of breaks the trust between, you know, both them and the buyers or sellers and the companies themselves. So I think it all just goes back to how gray and opaque this market is. Um, and uh, But that's that's been good for both my partner and I here at Bloom. Um, we really try to differentiate ourselves, try to build trust. We would like to be doing this for a long time um, with many of our clients. We're trying to build long-term trusting relationships, and we're not going to be able to do that if we're trying to make a quick buck here and there and trying to force transactions through um, with, with various parties. Do you find my SpaceX stock? Uh, I'm, that's a tough one, right? So that, that falls into the bucket of companies that, uh, manage things internally via tender offers. And they've actually done of, of all companies that do it, uh, do tender offers internally. Obviously SpaceX, it's almost a $200 billion company at this point, which is wild and it's still private. Um, but they've done a good job of offering at least annual, if not semi-annual liquidity to, to shareholders via a structured tender process. But because of that, they have tight controls on who can purchase, um, and the types of structures that are allowed, um, in actually purchasing that equity. So I'm working on it for you. I am hoping for an answer this week. I actually am owed a call on that now that you Okay. Me. I think I think um, I can I think right. it's a million that number. Okay. Um, that, uh, that's usually the floor of where yeah. it makes sense. So um, I will keep you posted. You know, Brian, I've I've got um, faith in you. I believe that you can do this. <laughs> I appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you excited about? Your your wife's pregnant, right? My wife is pregnant. Yeah, we're due in July. Um, so that is first and foremost what I'm excited about. So she's not all uh, big and farty yet. Not yet. Not yet. Coming. <laughs> we're uh, we're going to Hawaii for a baby moon. That's going to be very nice. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, so um, I did not go to Hawaii all that often. Uh, this is only my second time there. So looking forward to checking out a new island in Kauai. Um, but overall, I think uh, I'm... You know, I'm very excited about the direction that the market is heading for our specific business in 2024. Um, as I said, the last two years or so, um, bid-ask spread was quite wide. Uh, volumes were overall relatively low. Um, and we're finally at a point where I think uh, transactions are going to come together a lot more often. And uh, we've set up Bloom to be very well positioned to, to take advantage of that. So optimistic. Um, I tend to be more optimistic than pessimistic, but I'm really looking forward to that this year. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And of if course. you are a large company at scale that wants to find ways to, um, to get employees some liquidity, or if you're somebody that wants to buy blocks of, of stock from big companies, how would they get in touch with you, Brian? Uh, I'm Brian at bloomventurepartners.com. We've got a website. Actually, we've got a new website coming up 
soon here. The one that I made when we started the company is not cutting it. So we're, we went a little bit more professional route. Um, but uh, yeah, there's Brian at bloomventurepartners.com is my email. Happy to talk to whomever has questions, interested in the space on the buy or sell side. We're always here as a resource. Awesome. All right, guys, that's a wrap of another episode of the Capital Stack. We have an episode every week, so please uh, subscribe, tell a friend, and we will see you then. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.